Well, the DA's race and their criminal justice conversation is very much the context for our next guest, uh, who is going to be speaking about uh, prison policy and some interesting and uh, uh, unusually problematic changes being contemplated by the state. Uh, we're going to be joined now by Elizabeth Gaines, who is the executive director of the Osborne Association. That is an uh, organization that for 85 years has worked with uh, people who are incarcerated and their families to deal with the impacts of being behind bars. Uh, welcome to Max. Murphy. Thank you. So talk to us about Lincoln Correctional. That is a facility that some people have heard about, some people know a lot about. Many of us have probably walked by without knowing exactly what it is. Um, Why is that on your radar screen today? Well, it's on our radar because um, the New York population of prison has gone down dramatically, and this has led to the opportunity to close prisons, which is generally a good thing. Um, And the governor has closed numerous prisons over the last few years, but New York City has taken the biggest hit in terms of prison closures. Even though New York represents, people in the New York City area represent well over half of the people incarcerated, if you count Long Island and the suburbs, um, they've closed Arthur Kill in Staten Island, they closed Bayview, which was the only women's prison really in New York, um, they closed Fulton Correctional Facility, which actually my organization now owns and is converting into a community reentry center. Um, there's really nothing left in New York. And what's funny to me is that when they try to close a prison upstate, the politicians go crazy. They say our, our economy is being affected. This is part of our community. We want this prison. But every single time a prison is closed in New York City, it's like crickets. Nobody seems to care. Um, and we care because we focus on proximity and the ability to have people close to home. And in particular, Lincoln Correctional Facility, which is, you're right, most people probably have gone by it. It's uh, top of Central Park North. Um, it's a work release facility. And, and what that means is that people who are there are close to being released from prison and they go out eight hours a day to a job to earn money, and so that they are slowly being released to the community um, and being able to to readjust to their lives. Almost every other state, the federal system have halfway houses where instead of just releasing somebody directly from solitary confinement or directly from maximum security prison or directly from prison and with $40 and send them to Port Authority, In a work release setting, you're giving people the opportunity to move slowly into the community, to earn money um, over the last, before they sort of started to wreck uh, work release, starting in the Pataki administration. um, Work release people earned, while, while still incarcerated, earned $148 million. They paid $40 million in taxes. They were forced to save $48 million. So this is a way of releasing people. So suddenly, this is the last work release facility in the downstate area, um, and they're closing it. And, and have they proposed some stopgap measures, some way to replace those services for people who still need them? Well, they've transferred some of the remaining uh, men to Queensboro, which is the last prison left in New York city, uh, in Long Island City, but but all that does is reduce 
the other beds that would have been available in Queensboro for people who are close to release. The idea being moving people closer to home so that by the time they are home, they have more resources, more abilities. So, no, they're not replacing, um, they're not adding any beds back. They're just reducing, reducing, and reducing to where New York City now doesn't have a facility that's dedicated to work release, even though we know that work release is probably the most single most effective reentry program that's ever been designed. Is there any hope at this point? Is this a done deal? Uh, is there are there any discussions that you're either part of or aware of uh, to to alter this decision? Um, I I don't think. I mean, unless the public, we, we've certainly raised this issue, as have a number of advocates and organizations that care about the safe release of people. But the people that would have to, I guess, make noise about it, like upstate when they close a prison, all of the elected representatives of the county, of the town, of the village, um, go to the governor and make try to make a case. I have not seen any effort um, to keep it open. There has been some effort to say, well, if the state doesn't want it, why don't we utilize it for, say, the women who, when we close Rikers Island, maybe that would be a good place for them. But, I mean, the idea that Governor Cuomo is going to give Mayor de Blasio mm-hmm. a, a prison seems a little far-fetched to me. But there has been... There's been people arguing. Right, for I saw that. Gail Brewer, I believe, talked about something along those lines. The Manhattan Borough President, but as you're saying, she and others are not out there uh, pushing back against the state about about closing the facility. There hasn't. There really has been nothing. We've we've tried. I don't. I assume. I guess it's a done deal. But um, I I think. And I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a beautiful building, and I'm, I'm sure that they could sell it. The state's going to sell it, but that's a one-time little cash infusion of, what, $30 million of a nice townhouse kind of thing on Central Park North. Um, but the thing, when you look at what's happening with the, the opposition to building the new jails to replace Rikers Island, and you see that there's a facility that's been operating for years and years in a community in which there's no opposition, why would you, knowing how hard it is to open a jail, why would you close one that has been accepted by the community? So to some degree, this is a symptom uh, or one byproduct of, as you mentioned, the larger changes in state prison policy. I was checking before we came on the air from 2009 to 2018, the state prison system went from about 60,000 inmates now to around 49,000. It's probably a little lower now. Obviously, the general story of that is that that's a good thing. We're decarcerating. But from your vantage point, I'm sure you're seeing, uh, other than Lincoln, other complexities and wrinkles in that. What are some other things that, you know, we're all focusing a lot on Rikers here in the city when it comes to the prison system that you feel we should be talking about and thinking about? Well, the population has gone down but the percentage of the population that are serving, like a prison population is a function of the number of admissions and the length of stay. And we have now reduced dramatically the number of people going in because there's been this pushback correctly that some of the cases people were sending to prison, drug cases, things like that, they're not going to prison anymore. But the people that are going there are staying much, much longer. 
And so we're seeing two things. One is the aging of the population, because the people who are there are serving very, very long sentences. The percentage of people that are there for crimes that we refer to as violent crimes, whether the people are currently violent or not, um, has is now 65% of that population are now uh, people convicted of violent crimes, which is significant. And they're doing a lot of time. And there's a lot of the likelihood of them coming home has become harder and harder. And the result of that is that they're aging. So that we went from having people over 55 being maybe 10% of the population, now it's 20%, and it's going to be growing more and more and more. So the challenge now is that after all of those years of our saying, oh, release all the nonviolent drug offenders, those people shouldn't be in prison, we threw all everybody else under the bus with the assumption that that means that everybody who is there should be there and should be there for almost forever. So the new problem is that we've created a virtually indigestible mass of people who we are categorizing as violent, although you were talking before about people evolving. These folks have definitely evolved. The recidivism rate for when we do release people who are older, whose crimes might have been murder years ago, their recidivism rate is very close to zero. The risk scores show that they have are no risk to public safety. But we have this punitive excess in this country, this desire. You know, it's very unfortunate. The, the Australians got the criminals and we got the Puritans. And there's this ethic that says we should just keep punishing people forever, ever, ever. And that's what we're dealing with now in the state. With that population going down, they should have closed Attica, not Lincoln. And so uh, some of those discussions are part of the of the advocacy push for next legislative session in Albany. Do you have um, any sense of momentum and support in the state legislature for some of those reforms? Do you? I, th- I yeah. think so. You know, I think that they, they kind of they were so excited that they got through, that, that the Democrats took over and they got their bail reform and some of the front-end changes, that by the time they got to the back-end changes around parole, I think there was some exhaustion. However... Well, I can tell you just quickly that we just had State Senator Michael Generis on of Queens, who was instrumental in some of the bail reform, and he did mention as, as part of the agenda for next year uh, parole reform. So you know. I, think it's going to, I think it's going to be there because several of the bills... Were, they did. They got pretty far, um, and I think that they will. The two that we were really looking at, one is the elder parole bill, which most states have, um, where individuals who are over 55 and have already served 15 years would be eligible to be considered for parole release. doesn't mean they would be, but it would, for those folks who got these what we used to call Methuselah sentences, because you'd have to be 900 years old to serve them, um, those people would could be considered, um, and that bill made some progress. And the other was called fair and timely parole, and the idea was, look, if the person has met, the, they're eligible for parole, and they've met all the requirements, and they are determined not to be a current or unreasonable risk, then they should just be released. Right now, people are turned down over and over and over again. I just wrote a letter to release a guy who was sentenced to 25 to life. He's been in for 44 years. He has 20% of heart function. He probably has been turned down 10 times. 
There's not one iota of evidence that he poses any risk to anybody. Um, so I think those bills have a chance. Um, and there are parole bills, too, we should know. I mean, those, as you mentioned, deal with the back end. There are others that deal with the fact that uh, parole is also, the system is a generator of people coming from freedom back into the system because of alleged violations. That is a big driver of the population in Rikers, and it's driver of, of re-entrance or new entrance to the state prison system. Absolutely. It's called, that, 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 that bill that was, didn't get to a vote yet um, was called the Less is More Act, and it was to um, limit the detention and the time assessments for what we would call technical parole violations, where there's no new crime, but somebody has violated the rules, um, and that has been a huge driver of our recidivism rate. It is the only gro- was the only population in Rikers Island that was growing, actually, and we're very fortunate because the city council has provided Osborne with funding to work with parole violators on Rikers Island to be able to come up with faster alternatives because if they were failing on parole, there are better solutions than, I mean, they were originally obviously thought to be worthy of being in the community. Then they mess up and then sending them back to prison doesn't always seem to be the best solution. If they're using drugs or they're not adjusting well, then we should be addressing that by getting them the right kind of treatment and resources. I mean, that was what was so great about work release, frankly, is the two biggest challenges for people coming home from prison are affordable housing and marketable skills. And when people come home without any money and without any skills, the likelihood of them being able to, you know, be totally successful if they're being one of the you know, thousands of people are released into our shelters directly from prison. Why would we be surprised that they're not being successful on parole? So, so I think that leads me to our final question here for you. And we're talking with Liz Gaines of the Osborne Association. Um, aside from some of these legislative changes, is there another big ask, uh, ideal scenario, maybe related to funding or something else that you believe would make a, a significant impact when it comes to reentry uh, services? Well, we've believe, long believed that the reentry program of first and last resort 24 7 are people's families. We can't build enough housing to deal with affordable housing for people coming out of prison, and they're not going to be able to support themselves day one. What we should be doing, I think, and Osborne's programs for children and families supports the idea is that we should be maximizing the ability of families to stay close to people while they're incarcerated to make visiting um, and contact easier. Um, We've supported a visiting bus bill to bring back free buses, a proximity bill that would have people, like when they decide what prison they send somebody to, do you know that in the algorithm, nowhere is it like keep them close to their children? So I think it sounds like it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal because at the end of the day, people being able to live with families will address more problems than anything else. Um, Because we demonize people who are incarcerated and we assume that they are bad people, we also stigmatize their families, which is extremely unfair. Most people have families that are able and would want to be able to provide support for them. 
but we demonize families, we stigmatize their children, um, and we make it very difficult. So I actually think that would be a, it's a big ask because who they are and what we're trying to do. But I think it would make a huge, huge difference to think about this next generation of the children, how they're affected. Right now we are talking to the council about child-sensitive arrest bills to be able to have police think about children when they arrest somebody and then think about them when they incarcerate them and then think about them when they come home because I do think that that's going to be the solution or at least a significant part of it. Well, we have been very pleased to be speaking this afternoon with Elizabeth Gaines, who is the president and CEO of the Osborne Association. Thanks so much for coming on Max and Murphy, and please keep updated on what happens this next session. Oh, thanks for asking me. Okay. So, uh, two great interviews. So much. Yeah. So, this is where we have to start, like you know, really um, uh, leveraging our producers and editors here yes. for a second hour, or <laughs> you know, some sort careful of, what you ask. Yeah, for. exactly. Um, great points there. And one mm-hmm. of them that comes up more and more as we, I think she she mentioned, there's some fatigue, some exhaustion yes. with reform. Not just that, but we are now moving into a period where the stories about people being incarcerated uh, because they jumped a subway turnstile those those are fading away. That will still occur. It's to be problematic, but we're talking about people in state prisons now. Some of them are serving life sentences because they have been convicted of extremely serious crimes, crimes you can't sort of dismiss. That is a more difficult population to build a mass movement around because the characters just aren't as sympathetic and people tend to like simple narratives. And at this point, criminal justice, if it ever was, is not a simple story. Yeah, I mean, I'll say, you know, it's tipping in that direction, but there's certainly quite a bit in between and there's certainly still you know, a number of folks going to jail and prison around lower level offenses because they have, again, some background, you know, mm-hmm. conviction. There's 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 a lot of gradations well, to parole the discussion. Being one yes, of those exactly. Elements, yeah. Um so, you know, we saw recently some high profile cases of parole board decisions letting people of, of elder age out of prison but who had been part of very serious or committed very serious crimes uh, decades ago. And that is still, as you said, just not something that necessarily plays well, so to speak, with popular narratives and press treatment and is easy for people to get out and oppose. You know, this is not something really I've spent a lot of time thinking about or studying. And, I, you know, I, I don't know what the right balance is, but, you know, there are compelling arguments around uh, when people are of certain ages, uh, you know, reconsidering whether they should be locked up. So a topic we will revisit sometime later on the show, among with many others. We are Max and Murphy. He's been Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. We're on every Wednesday at 5 p.m. with our engineer, Reggie, working the dials and our intern, Cyan. Uh, stay tuned for the WBAI evening news coming up at 6. And have a great week in the greatest city in the world. Mm-hmm.